you know what happens when people at the top of society decide that they want to reject someone or they want to get rid of them. Uh, and they cut off their platform and they, and they uh, do all they can to remove them from society's influence. Imagine uh, what Kim Kardashian's career would be like if she was banned from Instagram, for example. Uh, imagine how differently the Brexit vote might have gone if people like Nigel Farage, for example, weren't allowed any airtime on the TV or the radio. Um, or remember how quickly... Donald Trump fell from the front pages of the paper once he was banned from Twitter and he lost his place as the president. Uh, Those in leadership know that if there are individuals who want to influence society, drive change, lead a revolution, whatever it is, they're going to need a platform to be able to do it. And to keep hold of that platform, they need permission, as it were. They need to be allowed to use that platform. And so... uh, Many leaders over time, and even some governments even today, make it a very deliberate plan and ploy to shut down any opposition simply by um, cutting off the voice of those who seek to oppose them. Not because they're violent or dangerous, but just because they are different. They are dissenting voices. And so the government or the media or the TV bodies, they reject a person. They shut out, shut them out. And it has the effect not only of taking the wind out of their sails, it doesn't just slow them down in their mission, but it totally removes them from all influence in society. Now, I'm not here to talk about political influence in society. I'm here to talk about Jesus. And as we've looked through Mark's Gospel, we've seen a rising swell of um, rejection that was coming towards Jesus, coming from the leadership, those in authority, those with power, those who pulled the strings in society. And the looming question is, what is this rejection going to mean for Jesus' ministry? How is it going to affect his mission to bring in God's kingdom? What would it be like if Jesus wasn't allowed to stand up in the synagogues and preach? What would it be like if he wasn't allowed the freedom to travel from town to town? What would it be like if the people of Jerusalem were not allowed to go out and see Jesus and listen to him and hear from him? How would that affect Jesus' ministry if he was severely and deliberately rejected by those in leadership. What we're going to see today is how does Jesus respond to those who reject him? How does Jesus respond to those who reject him? We're going to first think about those who are very hostile to him, the Pharisees, the leaders, the hostile haters, I've called them. Then we're going to look at how he responds to those who are not necessarily harshly opposed to him, but are still rejecting him in a sense. I've called this group of people the the doubting dissenters. They are the the family that you see in the passage that we read. And then we're going to have a reminder that although many reject Jesus at their own loss, yet there remains a welcome to anyone who chooses to submit and follow him. We're going to close by thinking about the welcome Jesus offers to those who are willing. So first, the hostile haters. Now, as I mentioned, chapter 2 has been all about the leaders rejecting Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. Um, Jesus had to face accusation. He's had to face spies. He's had to face uh, slander. He's had to face trick questions and suspicion. And chapter 3, verse 6, the section that we ended with last week, ends with, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill 
Jesus. If you want rejection, here it is. They want to totally wipe him off the face of the planet. They want to get rid of him, kill him. But although they rejected Jesus, they couldn't deny him. They couldn't deny the truth of Jesus' power. They couldn't deny the fact that Jesus was able to perform miracles. And actually, they even, at times, expected Jesus to perform miracles. They were waiting for him to heal someone on the Sabbath. They couldn't deny, also, Jesus' power over demons. And interestingly, it's the demons who are most forthright in proclaiming who Jesus is. In verse uh, 11, whenever the evil spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Well, those leaders who are rejecting Jesus, what are they going to do about the way that even the demons seem to be submitting to him? Now, his power in these areas not only caused a problem for the leadership, but also it's causing many, many people to come and follow him. And so people from, from all over the area are coming out to listen to Jesus. And that's what's going on in verse 7 and 8. Um, you get the sense from verse 10, for example, that they're not really ready to follow him as Messiah. They're just interested in seeing more of his miraculous power. They're crowding round him uh, that more and more people might come and touch him, not necessarily coming to listen to his teaching. And so the leaders are stuck with a, a problem. If they're going to... If they're going to avoid a rebellion from these many people who seem to be eager for Jesus, they need to be able to account for his power that he seems to be showing. What do we make of his miraculous power? What do we make of his authority over the demons? Slander is just not going to cut it. Uh, And just shutting him out of opportunity to speak is also not going to cut it. People are going to find him because of the great power that he's able to show. And so, by verse 22, they come up with an idea. The teacher of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub, an old name for the devil. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons, they say. Look, you want to know where he gets his supernatural power? Well, he gets it from the devil. And do you want to know how he's got the authority over the demons? Well, actually, he's the the prince of all the demons working in front of you. They're not going to accept the plain truth. Instead, they have to propose a conspiracy. They have to ignore the plain facts of the matter, and they have to twist the situation. They call what is good an evil thing. And that's the only way they can come up with to accuse Jesus. And that that tactic of calling what is good evil is not an uncommon tactic at all in in any political uh, argument or case. And so you could think, for example, back to... The abolition of slavery would be a good example. Those who were fighting uh, to get rid of slavery were saying it's an inhumane thing to do, to keep a person as property. And yet those who were trying to keep it would twist it on its head and say, look, to take away slavery would actually be to rob someone else. It'd actually be to rob the slave owners of their property. They totally twist the whole argument on its head and call what is good an evil thing. People have done it throughout the centuries. People are doing it here with Jesus and people still do it today when they talk about Jesus and his church. And so you will hear people talk about Christianity being not freedom from sin, but an enslavement to laws and rules. Christianity is just a system to to trap you and to to mould you, to be just like everybody else, to make you conform. It's a trap. It's It's a straitjacket, they will say. Christianity, they might say, is not a force for good. The church is not generous at all. The church is just a a money-making scam, they might say. 
And even some go as far to say, look, the teachings of Christianity certainly don't promote morality. The teachings of Christianity are wicked. They are evil. They are backwards. They are moral depravity. And many speak out in these ways publicly, very prominently against Jesus. And their aim is not just to defend themselves against Jesus, but to cause others to stop following Jesus. And I'm sure you will come across such voices. But you know, to do so, they have to completely ignore the facts of the matter in front of them. And they have to rewrite the evidence that they're being presented. And so, for example, those who are saying that Christianity is a system which enslaves you and restricts you, the only way they can say that is if they ignore, totally ignore, the testimony of millions and millions of Christians around the world who would call their faith not a straitjacket, but a freedom. Who have found not damage and reclusiveness in their faith, but an opening up real, true life, goodness and value in following Christ. And they have to totally ignore that in order to be able to twist it on their head. Those who claim that the church is just a money-making scam focus their accusation on a very narrow part of what is sometimes called the church. And they ignore the evidence of the many thousands of Christians who live extraordinarily generous lives. They ignore the sources of the vast majority of generosity and charitable giving uh, that uh, we see. And those who claim that Christianity is wickedness, who say that the the rules of Christianity are backward, they're taking us back to an old age, they're unhelpful, they're repressive, they conveniently ignore the fact that many of their own foundational principles, principles about equality and fairness and human rights, don't come from secular reasoning, but come from Christian reasoning come from a a Christian understanding of a God who made all people and made them equal. And Jesus responds to those haters, those who are hostile to him, and quite simply points out the inconsistency of their argument. Verse 23, Jesus begins his response. You're obviously wrong, Jesus says. How can Satan possibly drive out Satan? If, if it is Satan who's given me the authority to drive out demons, then what Satan is actually doing then is demolishing his own kingdom. And for what aim? And in this answer, Jesus not only is pointing out the, the foolishness of their accusation, but he's also giving us a, a brief reminder that Jesus' aim is not to gather followers or to, to build a big following or, or just to make himself famous. His aim is to build a kingdom. And in building his kingdom, he's destroying another kingdom. That is the kingdom of Satan. And Mark is pointing us back to the introduction of Jesus that we had in chapter 1, as Jesus began this great battle against Satan. Began it in the wilderness, but that battle against Satan continued throughout Jesus' ministry. And therefore, Jesus says, look, my miraculous power is not because I'm possessed or empowered by Satan. Rather, first, I've had to overcome Satan. To suggest that I'm empowered by Satan is as foolish as suggesting that a person tries to rob a strong man's house and as they go into the house, the strong man is there helping him rob the house. It's ridiculous. That's not how you rob a house. The the people don't help you to rob their house. First, you've got to overcome such a strong man. Jesus is saying, I'm not empowered by Satan. I have overpowered him. Not only is the argument against Jesus empty and illogical, But also, Jesus shows them, it's not going to affect his ministry at all in the way that they hope it will. Jesus' success in his mission does not depend 
upon those religious leaders accepting him. He does not need their favour. He does not need their blessing. Just like today, Jesus' church does not need or depend upon the blessing of the society in which we live. We will continue to face rejection and ridicule from the society around us. But the mission of the church does not depend upon their acceptance. In fact, all of Mark's gospel, in one sense, is about the rejection of Jesus. It will be the rejected Messiah who gives his life so that his people can be accepted. Not by society, not by the leaders, but by God himself. And so Jesus offers a warning to those who stand against him. And this warning that comes up in verse 28 and 29, I recognize has caused many people a lot of anxiety, many sincere believers a lot of anxiety. Because the words seem so stark and harsh and unflinching. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, we're going to deal with this very verse more fully next week. And Joseph's going to spend time unpacking what it means to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit and, and what this warning really is all about. But for today, I just want to say that Jesus is saying, those who reject him, actually, it's not a, it's not a slight on his ministry. Actually, it's going to cause them to be rejected. He challenges them, you think I'm possessed by a spirit? Well, actually, yes, yes, I am possessed by a spirit, but not the impure spirit that you claim I'm possessed by. I'm possessed by the Holy Spirit. And if you are calling my Holy Spirit the spirit of Satan, then where else are you going to turn for forgiveness and for salvation? Who else are you going to turn to? Where else are you going to receive new life? And, and I think it's in that sense that their sin is unforgivable. It's not so much that they've crossed a line of no return, that no matter how much they do, they can never get back over that line. But rather it's saying, you're rejecting the only possibility that you ever will have for salvation. And you, you can see that in the way that Jesus qualifies what he's saying in verse 28. Any sin, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But if you continue treating the Holy Spirit as the spirit of Satan, then where else are you going to turn for forgiveness? You will never be forgiven. His words are a stark warning to the hostile haters, both those religious leaders who were stood there in front of him, and his words resound true today to those who remain hostile and opposed to the church of Jesus Christ. But it's no surprise if that warning falls on deaf ears, if there's no response to that, even today. But there's another group um, that are mentioned here, and I'm calling this group the Doubtful Dissenters. Uh, that group is his family. Uh, you'll notice, as we read through, that the, there's a bit of a sandwich structure in the way this passage is written. So in verse 20 and 21, we start, Mark starts us off by telling us about the family. And then he goes on this little detour about the teachers of the law and Jesus' response to them. And then in verse 31, he goes back to talking about the family. And they're calling for him and want him to come out. Now, this sandwich structure is a, is a tool of Mark's that he uses throughout his gospel. And what he's doing is he's showing that these two incidents are so closely intertwined that you can't treat them as separate and, and divided. But you've got to treat them as similar to one another. And in fact, your understanding of one will help you understand what's going on in the other. And we've seen this already a little bit in the way, for example, Jesus' 
authority has been shown in chapter 1 and how he calls his disciples as he's walking by the sea. If you go back in the gospel, you'll see some of that. Uh, And here, the account of the family surrounds the dialogue that Jesus is having with the leaders. And it indicates that the the way we understand what's going on with the leaders is going to help us understand what's going on with the family. I've called the family doubtful dissenters because they don't oppose Jesus with so much hostility as the leaders. They're not really uh, stopping him doing his ministry. They, They don't want to get rid of him. They certainly don't want to kill him. They just think... Isn't he going a little bit too far? You know, isn't he a bit extreme in what he's doing? And you can imagine, especially his mum's frustration. Maybe you've been on at the end of your mum's frustration when uh, he's not eating his meals. He's not living properly. You know, verse uh, 20, he was so busy he was not even able to eat. And you can imagine his mum's concern for him when he hears, what on earth is he doing? Go and get him. Let, let me feed him. Let, let me take him away from his mission. And uh, let me make sure he's, he's uh, on the right path. In verse 21, they say, he's out of his mind. It's interesting how close that accusation is. He's out of his mind to the accusation of the Pharisees. His mind is possessed by another. It's not a huge jump from one to the other. They want to take charge of him. They want to lead him away. They want to tone down his teaching. And again, there are many people today who fit this same sort of pattern in the way they respond to Jesus. Is it, is it really so necessary for Christians to be all eager and excited about following Jesus? Do I, do I really have to be that sort of Christian? Is it really necessary for me to be telling other people about Jesus? Can't, can't we just be Christians who have Jesus as a, like a personal faith? We don't have to go telling other people, do we? Do we, do we really have to agree that Jesus is the only way to God? Isn't that a bit exclusive and, and unfair towards other people? And what about all this about heaven and hell and angels and demons? Do I really have to buy into all that supernatural stuff? Can't I just have Jesus as someone who I follow and and gives me a good life, as a good moral example? And maybe you're not so far off those sorts of accusations towards Jesus. Maybe, for example, you've grown up in a Christian family. In one sense, you are happy to be called a Christian, But in another sense, if somebody ever asked you to get baptised, or if you were ever challenged at school or college or your workplace about whether you really follow Jesus, or if ever people bring up the topic of Christianity and what it means to love Jesus at a time other than Sundays, during the week, in the family home, or if you're ever challenged to give up sin, you think, nah, that's that's a bit too much to ask. I'm I'm not that sort of Christian. You're out of your mind, you might say, to ask me to do that. No, no, I'm happy to be a Christian, but not such a Christian. I'm happy to be related to him in some way, but not as extremely as you might be proposing. And maybe you assume that you're okay, because you've got that family link with Jesus. You know about Jesus, you know the songs, you you are part of the church, you're part of his family. And you reason that, you know, if in the end it all is true, then surely I'm close enough to him to be okay. I'll be all right. He'll accept me, won't he? Because on the whole, I've accepted him, haven't I? How does Jesus respond to his family when they treat him in this way? He gives them a warning. 
Verse 32, the crowd is sitting around Jesus and they tell him, your mother and your brothers and your sisters, uh, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus asks, who are my mother and my brothers? Who are they? It's not those who have a physical relationship to me. It's not those who have a family connection to me who are privileged to enjoy those special relationships. That's not what it means to be my mother or my brother or to be part of my family. It's not just a physical connection. Those who are my mother or my brothers are those who do the will of God. And so just like just like Jesus does with the haters, Jesus rejects those who reject him. He implies there is no middle ground when it comes to following him. The gospel accounts tell us both that whoever is not for Jesus is against him, and whoever is not against him is for him. There is no bit in the middle. You're either on his side or you're opposed to him. You're either all in or you're all out. There is no sitting on the fence. And it rings true for many people today too. It's not just those who come here on a Sunday morning who fill the seats within the church who are recognised as part of his family. But rather it's those who do his will. Those who submit to him. Those who seek to serve him with their lives. Those who sit at his feet like this crowd was doing, listening to him, worshipping him, depending upon him. Giving up their whole lives to him. Well, the warnings then have multiplied. Jesus has rejected those who are hostile to him, who hate him. Jesus has warned those who are doubtful of him that they are close to being rejected. Jesus has said, you have no place in my kingdom. My ministry does not depend upon your acceptance. I will not tone down my mission just to try and get as many people as I can in here. Jesus is not a celebrity who feeds off the numbers of followers that he has. And he's certainly not going to lower his criteria to add in extra people. And Mark's purpose in providing these accounts of what happened with Jesus, and certainly his purpose in setting them aside one another, is, I think, to challenge those of us who read his gospel. And to say, where are you in this account? Are you one of those who is directly opposed to him? Who hates his mission? You want to stop others from following. Are you one of those who, in a sense, is happy to be aligned with Jesus in some sense, but he's not willing to go all the way with what he is calling you to? Who thinks at times he seems a little bit too extreme? Uh, to ask me to do that, well, you're really out of your mind. Or are you one of those in the crowd who sit at his feet and are willing to sit and learn from him? Don't go on rejecting him, Mark is warning us. There is a safer place to be in. Instead, align yourself to him. And you know what? It might mean, actually, that you too are rejected. Because just as the religious leaders and the society hated Jesus, so also they will hate his people, his disciples. And that's been true ever since Jesus walked on this earth. And so to follow Jesus might mean that you have to reject the world and in turn the world will reject you. But Mark's gospel will show us that actually the one who was rejected, Jesus Christ, was accepted by the greatest, God, our Father. And so you too, if you're willing to face the rejection of the world, 
you also, through Jesus Christ, will be accepted. And when you're accepted, you don't just become a follower, a statistic on Jesus' homepage of his website. You are honoured. You are welcome to be part of his family. And he calls you his brother, his sister. He calls you his friend. He says you are part of his family. You are his body. He's not looking for subjects to serve him. He's inviting people into his family so that he can serve us, provide for us, honour us, exalt us, and even to work through us. Will you go on rejecting Jesus, however slight and doubtful, or will you submit to him and be welcomed in as one of those who are willing to do the will of God? 